New Guinea in 1956. I was 10 months old. And uh, it was Pioneer Missions. You know, this is way back in the day when uh, there were certain parts of the world that had never never heard anything. Have, have you anybody read Peace Child or Eternity in Their Hearts, Don Richardson? Okay. He was in the swamps when we were in the highlands. So some of his stories are about the tribe that I grew up in. Now, New Guinea is kind of unusual. It has over 800 unrelated language groups. It's an anthropologist's dream world, right? And nobody knows why and can't figure it out. But it's kind of like the Tower of Babel was right in the middle. You know, when all the languages got confused and they couldn't get off the island. So... <laughs> But uh, so 850, 800 plus language groups, and ours is Donnie. And Donnie is, um, it's, a, it's one of the largest tribes in New Guinea. If you've read any Ted Decker, Ted, Ted Decker was like a valley over from us. And, um, um, and he's a little younger than I am. Not much, although he looks like a lot younger than me. And, um, but um, 10 months old, we go into this culture, 40 to 60,000 people in this tribe, over 100 square miles. And in New Guinea, the tribes are basically separated by land issues, like big rivers or mountain ranges or swamps or something. And that's kind of what isolates these people groups. And um, the only time they really care about each other is when they're trying to kill each other. And, um, and you know, warfare and all that. So we had uh, warring, spirit-worshipping, uh, ritualistic cannibals. The first book ever written about the valley called the Baling Valley that I grew up in is called Cannibal Valleys by Russell Hitt. And uh, so, you know, funny side story. I'm doing an interview on television, right? And it's a taped interview. And if you've read The Shack, you know that for the most part, when you tell somebody about it, you don't, you don't really want to try to describe it. It's not the easiest book in the world to describe. So people are interviewing me all over the place about the book and it's easy to spot somebody who hasn't read it. All they've read is the back cover. And they think that that's enough to give them an idea of what's going to happen in the book, right? And so it's kind of like fun to me when I'm being interviewed by somebody that I know hasn't read it. Right? Because I, mean, I can take them down any kind of wild goose chase, right? And um, so this gal She's interviewing me, and uh, and she says, "So you grew up around cannibals?" And I said, "Yep, totally changed my view of finger food." <laughs> right? And she goes, "Oh, that's fascinating." And whew. and you know what's really funny is that they kept it. I mean, they didn't edit it out. <laughs> Somebody in the editing room is didn't like her. <laughs> And they're going, she'll never pick up on this, right? So they left it in there. But so I grew up in a way, I thought everybody, you know, grew up around cannibals. And uh, because the way you grow up is kind of normal until you run into other people. And um, so here we've got a, uh, a, a tribe that speaks a language nobody has ever heard before. And I'm 10 months old. And I was raised uh, by the tribal people. My parents were part of a, a generation of missions where if you did the work of God, God would take care of the kids. That was kind of the assumption. 
And, um, and they had no idea. They're in their 20s. They don't have any idea how dangerous this place is. Not really. They didn't know that because I was raised inside the tribe that I was around their conversations that they were trying to figure out whether to kill my parents or not. And, um, and I was uh, around uh, the, the inside of what was going on and my parents didn't have a clue. They didn't have a clue. And, it, and it, there were elements of that that were really wonderful because the tribal culture was, had some really great things. But there were some things that were very awful. And, um, and you know, they didn't know why I had night terrors as a child. They didn't know. Um, they just didn't know about a lot of things. And, and, but it's a world I grew up in. So when I was five years old, Wycliffe came in to translate the language, to put it in some kind of written form. And I was the only one in the world that could speak English and Dani. So I was the informant for Wycliffe translators when I was five years old. So that's the world I grew up in. And um, uh, it, it was complete with witch doctors and the whole thing, right? Um, now, in, in the Dani tribe, uh, when I say unrelated language groups, I mean like unrelated language groups. There was no common language, no trade language, nothing you know that connected them. And so ours was Dani. The northern tribe to us was Damal, and Damal was a tonal dialect, like it's like Chinese and English difference, and so really disparate. Um, in our tribe, warfare was a highly organized event. Not much different than NFL football. Um, and when you wanted to, you know, somebody's great-grandfather, great-great-great-great-ancestor stole somebody's pig and it's time to make amends and, and so you have a war. And uh, so, you know, they'd send a runner over to the village and he'd say, we'll meet you on Hill 47, uh, we'll be on 47, you'll be on 49, we'll fight in between. Right? And they have this whole system of what they're supposed to do um, in their warfare. And uh, so part of how they exchanged news up and down the valley was through warfare. That's how you, because they didn't use drums and stuff. There was two basic ways to communicate as far as stories going up and down, news going up and down, and one was to fight. And so as you're ducking arrows, and they had rules. If you have a spear, you can't shoot at somebody with a bone arrow, and somebody with a bone arrow can't shoot at somebody with a spear. It's highly, highly civilized. And, uh, and they got guys that will run out on the field and pick up somebody that's gotten shot, you know. And they run all over the countryside. So my mom was a medical missionary, and so she, from the beginning, was taking arrows out of people and, and stuff that was happening inside the warfare. Now, now when, you, when you have a battle, you come up and you, you kind of stand away from each other and you send out representatives of your tribe and they go out there and they, they cuss at each other and, you know, make rude remarks about their family members and stuff until somebody gets mad enough to throw something and that starts the war. Right? And um, so while you're fighting, you're also exchanging news, which really corrupts it. It's kind of like, you know, the old telegraph thing where you talk, tell somebody a secret? Well, this is like telegraph while boxing. Right? So literally, the gospel stories would come down the valley through warfare. And by the time they got to us, they were highly corrupted. I mean, wild, crazy stories. One, one morning at about 4 o'clock, 
tribal people come running into our compound and they go, is it true that if we take our wives and throw them in the river, they'll come out young again? Right? They got baptism mixed up with regeneration. Right? <laughs> no, it's probably not a good idea. <laughs> you know, and that's... The other way you transferred information and, uh, in, in the Dani tribal culture was they used collars. Now these 40 to 60,000 people were over 100 square miles in villages. Um, and the villages were almost within earshot of each other, all over. Now what they would do is the person that had the, the strongest voice became the caller. And when information was called up the valley, this caller would go out in four different directions and yell it out. And word would come up the valley. That's uh, just how you communicate it. So there was a, a woman, um, her, the tribe had a massive transition in terms of a relationship with Jesus and it wasn't it didn't have a lot to do with the missionaries in fact the missionaries were trying to keep them from like you think it's a good idea to burn all your weapons and all your spirit worshiping stuff because it kind of leaves you vulnerable and they're going well you can either leave or not we're we're doing this because this is what God's telling us to do and they literally had a uh, fire uh, three foot wide three foot high and a hundred yards long of all their uh, spirit worshiping stuff and all their warfare stuff and and some of these folks got absolutely massacred by uh, other tribal cultures and um, they paid a pretty big price for this but um, there was this transition and part of that was in the in the Dani tribal culture they practiced adult euthanasia um, because it's a subsistence, subsistence culture and so when your elderly got to the place where they're no longer uh, productive they would throw them in the river. The Baling River is a very swift, dangerous river, and it was just practiced. Your elderly got old, and you threw them in the river. And, um, and they were not a drain on society that way. Right? Well, there was a woman, and I think her Donnie name was Inongodakwe, but her, she took on a Christian name. And it was Dorcas. Do you know the story of Dorcas in Scripture? The woman who helped the poor and was a trader of purple and uh, dyes and things. Well, she took on the name Dorcas. And, and what she did on her own, she went to all the villages and she would say to them, instead of throwing your elderly in the river, would you consider giving them to me? And she created an entire village of elderly people and would care for them until they died. Right? And she became sort of in the tribal culture in the interior of New Guinea, kind of like the uh, Mother Teresa of the Dani tribal people. And the thing about people like Mother Teresa, they carry a phenomenal sense of authority just by virtue of what they've done in terms of kindness and grace and, and these kinds of things. And um, so she was highly regarded. Um, they didn't understand, a, some, a lot of them, what, why she was doing this. But 
she was highly regarded, especially by the elderly. <laughs> so, so, so Dorcas had this village. Well, one day, uh, and, and we knew her, uh, we came back from uh, New Guinea when I was around 10 years old. And, um, but Jim and Dolores Sunda, Aunt, Aunt Dee and Uncle Jim, they took over our mission compound. They had, I told you this afternoon, they were the second family onto Pyramid Station that we built, my parents built. And um, so they stayed there, and, and they had this long-time relationship with Dorcas. Um, now... Word comes up the valley one day that Dorcas has died, and um, and it you know the the callers are are bringing it up the valley, and um, Aunt D uh, checks with the callers to make sure, and sure enough, she has she has passed away, um, and and they know when somebody's dead, you know, they have their ways of making sure, <laughs> and um, she's dead. Now, in the Dani tribal culture, they have a, a pretty set process about death. And what they do is, the day after someone dies, because it's a tropical culture, even though we're in the highlands, and it's a tropical culture, and uh, so they cremate the bodies. And But there is a process. So the day after someone dies, they create... It's akin to our open casket funeral. It has, uh, it's a viewing stand is what it is. And they prop the body in the viewing stand and then they drape it with nets and all of these things and you go to pay your respects. To, it's, it's like a sitting up open casket. And, but they have whalers, uh, mourners, and it is excruciatingly sad. And, uh, and so the whalers will be there and all that. And, and then they will take, and the way they transport the body is they tie it to a pole, you know, and they carry it to wherever they need to take it, to the viewing stand, and then they take it to the pyre. They burn the body the, the, the next day. So word comes up the valley, Dorcas has died. Next day, word comes up the valley that she is in the viewing stand when she comes back to life. Well, that gets everybody's attention, right? <laughs> and it's true. Dorcas has come back to life, and she has said, God has given me a message for these five chiefs. And I am to deliver this message to these five chiefs. And basically, from what we understand, the message was, it's time to get your act together. Right? And But it's personal. And she is... She, the word goes out, she wants to meet with these five chiefs. She, by this time, there's a, an indigenous uh, tribal community of faith, a church. And, and so when she comes back to life, she has a conversation, a public one, with the local pastor, the pastor of the, uh, the Donnie tribe uh, ch- church that's there. And she says to him, a few things. Okay, one is... No mourners. I don't want any whalers when I die. Because, see, I'm going to deliver these messages, and then I want you, talking to the pastor, I want you to pray and release me back to death. He goes, I'm not going to do that. She says, oh, yeah, you're going to do that. She says, no, I'm not, because they're going to think I killed you, and then they're going to kill me. Right? And so he's like, no, I'm not going to do this. She says, yeah, you'll do it. So here's what I want. You're good. You know, you're going to release me back into death after I talk to the chiefs, and then um, you're going to put me in the viewing stand 
which is fine. And then you're going to cremate my body, which is also fine. But I don't want any whalers, because if you've seen what I've seen, you wouldn't be crying for me. Okay? And then she says, and here are the songs that I want you to sing as they're taking me to burn the body. I mean, she sets it all out, right? Well, as you can imagine, the five chiefs show up. Right? Because this is not like normal stuff, right? And let me say, as an aside, raising the dead is a biological event. It's nothing compared with changing or transforming a human heart. The transformation of a soul is way more complex and magnificent than raising a body. Right? Because that's just biological. What happens in the process of the healing of the soul? Much more complicated and complex. And, and, but, you know, we're so scared of the event of death that we think, you know, that's kind of the ultimate thing, right? Let me tell you, even Lazarus died again. Right? And you're all dying. I don't know if that's bad news, but hey. I was saying yesterday that Baxter, uh, his dad, says, well, how else do you think we get out of here? You know? It's kind of like... But we have such a, a small view of the reality that we're in. We think this is it. And, you know, part of that is the problem of painting imaginations of heaven with, you know, clouds and harps and a lot of boring stuff. You know, compared to a waterfall, like, how's that going to stand up, you know? And uh, so why would we want to leave? Um, and the, the point is that we were intended to live in a physical reality. The, you know, the, this creation was not plan B, you know? And new heavens and new earth is not new in kind. It's refurbished. It's this this massively cleansed physical re, uh, environment that we were intended for. We're intended to be physical human beings. So, um, so anyway, chiefs meet with her, and she has her little conversation, and then she says to the pastor, "Okay, <laughs> time for you to pray me back to death." No. No, you do it. Well, and she carries all this authority, right? So he goes, okay, everybody, I am not killing her. (laughs) Right? And he prays the most innocuous, God, whatever it is that happens to be your will, we ask that you would enact it. And she dropped dead. (laughs) Serious. Dropped dead. So... They have the, you know, the viewing and they don't have the uh, whalers and they sing the songs and uh, Dorcas has died. So there, it's, there's a grieving process. Well, two weeks later, uh, she, she didn't rise from the dead again, just so you know. But, but two weeks later, word comes up through the callers, Okumarek is dead. Now, we knew Okumarek. He was a witch doctor who had... Aunt D was the one who led him into a relationship with Jesus, but she was always convinced it hadn't stuck. Right? Because he's kind of a snake. And, and so there was always this thing about Akumarek. So when the callers came up the valley, Akumarek is dead. Aunt D says, good. <laughs> right? It's like, Good. Because he's kind of a snake. The next day, the callers have come up. Akumarek has risen from the dead. 
And she goes, that snake, right? Because... Of course a Kumarek would do this. After all the attention the Dorcas got for, you know, rising from the dead, it would be just like a Kumarek to rise from the dead. <laughs> right? So she is just ticked. <laughs> right? And she's asking, all right, are you sure he's dead? He was dead? Like, really? Oh, yeah. He says uh, they had checked him every which way. You know, and uh, and they got ways. So, and he was he was on the pole, going to the viewing stand the next day when he came back to life. Well, she doesn't believe it. So, the next day, she is uh, going out to the, the, of a little hut outside their house where they store everything, and she was going out there to get stuff for Uncle Jim's lunch. And she is on her way out there, and a kumarek is sitting right in the path, well, right next to the path. And she totally ignores him, because she is so mad at him, right? She ignores him. So she walks into the hut, and, and she's getting her stuff that she needs for the lunch, and she turns around, and a kumarek is right in her face. And he says, Mama, I need to talk to you. Yeah, what do you want to talk to me about? I saw him. You saw him? Who did you see? I saw him, you know? The big one. <laughs> she goes, who are you talking about? He says, God, I saw God. Oh, yeah, right. He says, Mom, you, you, you don't understand. I saw him. And she, go, and she starts asking him all these questions, right? And he finally, he's kind of looking confused, and he looks at her and he says, why are, you, why are you asking me all these questions? He said, you know how in Donnie, they don't have colors. They, don't, um, they have uh, two words. One means bright and one means dark. And um, they, don't, they don't have words for colors. And so he says... You know when you missionaries, you come here and you're all dressed in your bright, your brights, you know? He said, what I saw, your brights would look dark. Right? And, and she's peppering him with questions because she does it, she's like, <laughs> and finally he says, why are you asking me this? He, she says, why shouldn't I be asking you this? And he says, because you were there. She goes, what? He says, you. You're the one that introduced me to him. You said to God, this is a kumarek, my son who I gave birth to. And she said in that moment she felt like this big. And he begins to describe who else is there. During this encounter and meeting, and it included both my parents who are both still living. There is something about the inner flow of time and space and all these things that we don't even begin to understand. Like I was saying this afternoon, one of my favorite sections of the historical part of the New Testament is that Jesus is talking to a couple dead guys and they've been dead for a few hundred years. <laughs> Elijah and Moses. It's not made up. And they're talking to him about what he's facing in Jerusalem. And we have a cloud of witnesses. Right? I don't understand all that stuff, but let me tell you, 
You can call Aunt D and she will tell you this story. She was there, right? <laughs> and uh, now I ran into Aunt D. I haven't see, I hadn't seen her in a lot of years, and and I found out where they lived. They're they're now retired, although Jim goes back and does some work in in Erion. But but uh, their daughter Margie, who I went to boarding school with. Margie found me because I happened to be on an, a national game show. <laughs> it's nuts. I have a really weird life. And uh, um, on a, in 2000, on a Thursday night, my daughter Amy dials an 800 number, hands me the phone on a Thursday night, and I am sitting in front of Regis Philbin on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire that Sunday, right? Come on, how nuts is that? This whole thing, and it's kind of building up, and Regis looks at me, and he says, okay, Paul, for $250,000, between which two planets is there an asteroid belt? I kid you not, and I went, B, final answer. He goes, What? I mean, he loved me by this point because I'm, I'm, I grew up in the highlands of New Guinea, right? I have six kids. I live in boring Oregon. I mean, this whole thing is like, he goes, what? And so I get to tell him about Jupiter and how God created the solar system. And it's like, unbelievable. $500,000 question comes up and I bailed on it because it was a pop culture question and I didn't know the answer, you know? And so I said, I'm done. And I walked away with $250,000. In fact, in fact, two weeks later, I got the check. And, and they let you take your own taxes out eventually. They sent me a check for $250,000. And so I got it. And I go to the credit union. And I, because everybody knows, because it was on TV the next day. There's a whole bunch of other stories. But uh, you, know what, you know what rippled through the culture is my interaction with my son. I got more mail about that in interaction about that little connection with my son than anything else that ever happened with regard to that show. So so I get the check. I go to the credit union. They're all like over the moon thrilled about this whole thing. And $250,000, you know. And I, I hand it in and I run out to the ATM and I have the slip. $250,034.17. I mean, we were down, right? So Kim, meanwhile, has driven down to California, to Pasadena, to visit Chad. And she checks the ATM outside of Costco because she wants to buy him some things, but she's thinking, and, and she looks at this going, wow, this is a mistake. Because it says 250000 And then she realizes, oh my gosh, the check must have come. <laughs> so Chad got plenty of stuff, you know. Okay. Whole side story, right? Now, because I was on that show, Margie Sunda, who'd been looking for me for 18 years, found me. And that, that makes sense because of this piece. The shack comes out, right? I make the 15 copies. It becomes this massive international phenomenon. And, and I'm in, uh, I have a friend in Washington, D.C. Forget the question and answer. We are not going there, just so you know. Um, I'll finish with this story and we'll, we'll see what happens. But, because uh, I don't want you to be here forever. That, that clock is wrong anyway. <laughs> but uh, it's still not been changed, you know. So um, I have a friend named Dan Polk. Dan, uh, I have a bunch of friends, actually. And if we had a motto, the motto would be, if you like someone, you give them your time and your money. But if you love them, you give them your friends. Right? So Scott Klausner gave me Dan Polk. 
Dan Polk lives in Annapolis, Maryland. And uh, he's, he's an investment banker, singer-songwriter. He had a, a record label, and he's a, he got three little kids, younger than me. And But he and I had become really good friends. And, and Danny was setting up... A, a, um, one of my speaking things was in North Carolina, and I was going to do seven cities in ten days. Right? So he and I were talking on the phone about logistics. And um, so I call to talk to Danny. Now, Danny, he would uh, flip houses, you know? Uh, you flip a house, and but he used it as a way to teach young men uh, trades. Right? It's very cool. And, and his goal was to break even. That's his goal. So he had a realtor that would help him find these houses, and then Danny would buy them and then flip them, but use them to help train young men in skills. Um, and some of them are coming out of prison and, you know, whatever. And, and so Danny, in, he, he knows construction, but he didn't have any time to do it. So the finish work, he had a contractor that did all the finish work. And he can do it, but he didn't have time. And the Finnish contractor had moved, so he lost his Finnish contractor. And this one particular day, he was kind of in a bind with regard to this because he'd taken a job for his parents and he didn't have a Finnish contractor to finish it up. And so he, he happened to mention this to his realtor who would find the houses, and the realtor said, hey, you know there's this new kid in town, young man, great reputation as a Finnish contractor. And uh, Danny said, can I have his name? Yeah, here. So he, they found his name and phone number. Danny calls him and says, hey, would you come over and do measurements on the project I'm working on to do the finish work? He said, sure. So this young man is in the room doing measuring when I called Danny about the trip to North Carolina. You follow? So... We talked for 15 minutes. Danny gets off the phone and this young man, this, Finnish, this new Finnish contractor, turns to Danny and says, Hey, Danny, was that William P. Young you were talking to on the phone? Was that the guy that wrote The Shack? Yeah? Why? My father went to school with him in New Guinea. My father-in-law. Really? You want to talk to him? So Danny calls me back. Right? And he explains this. Hey, I, I lost my finished contractor. You know, I'm flipping these houses. And uh, my realtor mentioned that there was this kid. So I called him up and he happened to be in the room when we were talking and he overheard our conversation. And he says, his father-in-law went to school with you in New Guinea. What? What's his father-in-law's name? What's your father-in-law's name? Joe Smith. I said, Joe Smith that went to boarding school in Santani? Is your father-in-law the Joe Smith that went to boarding school? Yeah, here, talk to him. I'm on the phone talking to Joe Smith's son-in-law. And nice kid. I talk to him for like, you know, 10 minutes. I get off. He hands the phone back to Danny. I say, hey, Danny, Joe Smith was my primary sexual abuser in boarding school. He goes, I go, please, don't say anything. I forgave him a long time ago. And Danny doesn't. Well, what I didn't know was Joe Smith was back in the U.S. He was raising support to go back overseas. And um, the last I'd seen Joe was 30 years before this at a missions conference. And when I saw him, I locked up. I just physically froze. The last I'd heard of him was because when Margie found me, we started talking about all the abuse in boarding school. 
And six months later, she had confronted Joe Smith about this, and his response had been in 2000, boys will be boys. That's the last I knew. So Danny didn't say anything. It happened that Joe Smith was raising support and spent the night a couple weeks later at his son-in-law's house. And his son-in-law says, Hey, you'll never believe who I talked to on the phone. William Paul Young, who wrote The Shack. I get an email from Joe. We need to talk. I am in Orlando at a book thing. Um, and I'm on my way to breakfast where I'm speaking to 300 people. And I, the email had come in, and I, I don't know why. I just, I called it. And Joe picked up the phone. And he says, uh, Paul, my wife and I are on our way to New Orleans. We're driving in Atlanta traffic right now. I'm a little afraid for my life. It's rush hour. Can we talk tonight? I'm halfway through the shack, and I want to finish it before we talk. I said, Okay. I walk into breakfast and we're doing Q&R. And the first question, first question, Paul, you've indicated there was sexual abuse in boarding school. Has any of that come to complete resolution? And I burst into tears. Right? Yeah, I've forgiven. Yeah, it's a process. Yeah. But look at this, right? And I, so I'm telling them about my conversation with Danny and... And I said, I'm, I'm talking to them tonight, and they're praying for me and all this stuff, and I'm going. So I call them that evening, and I say, I'm in, the, I'm in the lobby at the hotel, and we're supposed to go to a dinner. And I've got my arm around a, a young woman who is publishing the shack in, in Europe. Her name is Wendy Grisham. Her brother is John Grisham. Right? And I'm in this conversation, and Wendy kind of walked right into my arm and was listening to the conversation, right? And um, Wendy is a sweetheart of a human being. And I just didn't want to be alone in the conversation. And, uh, and she wasn't there at the beginning of it, but she was just standing there, and at one point I'm, you know, so she comes over and, and then she listens. and and I start the conversation with, hey, Joe, I don't know if this matters to you. Um, I don't know if you care about this. I don't know if this is important to you at all, but it's really important to me. It's important that I know that you know that I forgave you a long time ago. And there's this silence on the phone, and then Joe says, that's important to me too. And for 45 minutes, we talk about the abuse. I mean, boarding school at this time, this is back in the day, it was one of the most dangerous places on the planet. And, and, and of all the kids that were in boarding school, Joe probably got it the worst. He probably spent at least half of his elementary education in lockup. There was a day where he was required to lay on the concrete and all the rest of the kids were required to kick him as hard as we could to prove to him what a piece of crap he was. This is a place where 12-year-old little girls would wet their beds at night because of their trauma and they were required to wear diapers during the day and sit in high chairs. It was not good. And the sexual abuse just spilled over from the, what was going on in the tribal cultures. 
Not good. So we talk for 45 minutes at the end. Joe says, I leave back for overseas in September. Can I see you? I want to see your face. I go, man, my schedule's nuts. But it worked out that when I landed in North Carolina to do those seven cities, Joe drove down from Atlanta. And he and I sat in a restaurant and finished it. And he says, I needed to see your face to know you were okay. It was the same year, two things happened. One is, when I saw Joe, it was the first time in my memory that he looked small. Same year, first time in my life my dad had looked small. Both indicative of the kind of healing that I'd gone through. Right? And Joe drives me over and drops me off, meets Danny. Talk about a full circle. When does that ever happen, right? There is... There is a process that we have to deal with. We have to deal with the hurt that's in our own hearts. You can't go around the shack. You have to go into it. Right? The shack is the metaphor for the heart, the soul of a human being. It becomes, for a lot of us, the house on the inside that we did not get good help building. And it's a shack. It's got walls that aren't straight. It's got sewage leaking in the basement. And we hate this place. And we think anybody who ever finds out about it will hate it too. And we think God hates this place. And what we end up doing, what I did, because I'm a religious kid, missionary kid, firstborn, preacher's kid. I took a couple pieces of the shack that I could drag out in front of the shack and I created a facade. You know a facade like in Hollywood is a quarter inch piece of plywood and you can make it look like a real building? And what you end up doing is you live from the outside in. That is, you learn how to pick up everybody's expectations and you try to paint the facade to meet them. That was a different thing in every situation. It was a survival skill. Thin layer of perfectionist performance covering up an ocean of shame. And anybody that put their finger down into that shame, up would come fight or flight. You know, of course, I'm a religious kid, so I didn't run away from relationships. I just heard God call me somewhere else. Right? Thin layer of perfectionist performance. Let me tell you one of the most powerful things about shame. And guilt is that you've done something wrong. Shame is you are something wrong. And one of the most powerful things about shame is that it will destroy your ability to distinguish between a value statement and an observation. And you may know people like this if you are not this person. Shame destroys your ability to distinguish between an observation and a value statement. Simple way to explain this. Marrying Kim was the grace of God because I didn't know how to love anybody, but I had read the book so I knew what it was supposed to look like. And I got past her crap detector and her mom's. 
Kim saved my life. Paid a huge price for it. When we were first married and I couldn't run away, <laughs> couldn't hear God call me somewhere else where she didn't go, I was suicidal. I mean, all my crap came rushing to the fore. And, but I'm a missionary kid, so I know how to adjust the culture and adapt. And Kim, this is the way I explain this little piece about shame. Kim would say terrible things to me like, don't mix the colors with the whites. Can you imagine somebody saying that to somebody? Right? She's talking about laundry. What did I hear her say? I heard her say, I don't know why I married such a loser of a human being as you. Because shame had destroyed my ability to distinguish between a value statement and an observation. Any imperfection tapped right into that shame and up came fight or flight. I know what my survival mechanisms and skill are. But it took a long time to find out. You know what had to happen is the facade had to come crashing down. I wasn't trying to be a duplicitous person. I was actually trying to perform my way into some sort of wholeness. I was hoping if I could do it perfectly one day, the facade would become a real human being. Part of my healing was to find out that God never loved the facade. He loved the shack with all its damage. We keep our secrets because we're terrified that if somebody finds out about them, we will lose the little bits of affection and approval we've been working so hard to collect that gives us some sense that we might be worth something. But we're trapped by our secrets because when somebody offers us the very things that would heal our hearts, like forgiveness and kindness and grace, we don't believe them because they don't know the secrets. So we are utterly trapped by them. Relationship takes risk. Trust is about risk. And when you don't trust, you end up controlling everything. That's our survival mechanism. The journey in relationship with God is not trying to please Him, but learning how to trust Him. You cannot trust somebody that you don't know loves you and is not good all the time. This is why the first conversation in the Bible about God is an accusation about His character. He is not good all the time. He will lie to you and you can't trust Him. Because if we can get separated into imagination about the character and nature of God, in which God is untrustworthy, all we got is ourselves. Mackenzie spent a weekend in the shack. That weekend was 11 years for me. And unfortunately, there are some of us who are so broken, the facade doesn't come down until we get caught. 
I got caught. And it almost destroyed my wife. Eleven years. Eleven years for her and I to heal. Eleven years for me to become the same person in every situation. I didn't even know that was possible. Eleven years for me to be able to say, I don't have any addictions. And I'm not talking only about pornography and all that kind of stuff that happens with these kinds of damage. I'm talking about pleasing my dad or doing something great for God. Talk about a gold-chained addiction. Eleven years before I could say, I'm one of the healthiest people that I know. Right? I'm no different in a hotel room than I am with my grandbabies. And I didn't know that was possible. Wholeness is when the truth of your being matches the way of your being. Wholeness is when the truth of your being matches the way of your being. God has a high view of who you are and the Holy Spirit comes to tell you the truth about your being. And most of us are so buried inside of shame that all we hear is the lies. Number one lie for women in this world. You're not worthy yet of being loved. It's a lie. Every child does not need some form of validation for their existence. They are worthy. You matter. You're the one he left the 99 to find. Who you are matters. And he's come and climbed inside of our stuff. Didn't come alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John 14 through 17 to teach us the truth of our being. And out of that, the way of our being begins to match it. Wholeness. That's the adventure that we're in. And God weaves these stories and He weaves what His purposes are and He weaves His relentless affection in a way that doesn't become a new violator. Out of respect, God submits to our crap, climbs into it, and begins to grow things out of it that are beautiful. Eleven years, and it's done in terms of the major construction stuff. Lots of finish work. I had two prayers left in 2005 when I wrote a story for my kids for Christmas. Two prayers left. One of them was, I don't want to be an old man one day and look back at my life and wonder, what would it have been like to take the risk involved in trust? I don't want to be that guy. And my second prayer was, Papa, I'm never going to ask you again to bless anything that I do. That's, that's half the prayer, right? I'm a religious kid, so I've been trying to get God to follow me my whole life. Come on, i got this great idea for me, for you. Right? Come on, follow me. You know what's so cool? God, out of love, will never abandon us, so He will come with us. He just won't do anything. <laughs> Give it your best shot. I'll be right here when it all falls apart. And at the end of the day, you have this sick feeling because you've had to use manipulation in all these kinds of ways to get the work of God done. Yeah. So 
so I say, please, I'm, I'm, not, I'm done. I'm not asking you ever again to bless anything that I do. But if you've got something you're blessing and it would be okay for me to be a part of that, I'd be all over it. And I don't care if I'm cleaning toilets. It was one of my jobs at the time I wrote the shack. I don't care if I'm cleaning toilets or shining shoes or holding the doors open. I just want to know at the end of the day, you did this and you let me participate. And in God's great sense of humor, I am certain that God said, well, Paul, how about if I bless this little story that you're writing over here for your kids? You give it to your kids and then I'll give it to mine. I love that. I'm thrilled to participate. I don't even need to understand it. I don't want to understand it. And if it goes away tomorrow, I'm fine. It's a God who loves participation, who loves you with relentless affection. And it's powerful, and you can't change it. He knows the truth of who you are. And it's to the praise of His glory. Centered in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen.